1: Welcome to another episode of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. I am one of
2: your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan. We've got a great show. We're doing a series called American. American. Talking about the can-do spirit that is part of our American DNA,
1: it certainly is. And in this season that we find ourselves in, this coronavirus, this COVID nineteen, it has become a season of can't and restrictions, places we can't go. Kind of like we... being
2: married, huh? <laughs> no,
1: no, 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 that just came out. I'm sorry. Just came out. Yeah, I, I we'll we'll talk about it later. Oh, it's I'm a, sure we will. It's a... <laughs> um. So, yes, a season of, of can't. And our guests during this series are experts who are going to talk to us about ways that we can still learn and grow, train and connect and expand our freedoms in ways that maybe we haven't even thought about before. Um, our guest today is Jeff. Kelman. Now Jeff grew up in an anti-gun family and it wasn't until he was a teenager before he realized that it was actually legal for civilians to own guns in the United States. As a young adult Jeff purchased his first firearm and began understanding the responsibility of gun ownership and began, became interested in researching the history of laws restricting owning guns around the world and how those laws intersect with the Holocaust and genocides. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
0: Thank you, Cheryl, and thank you, Dan. Um, I've listened to a handful of your other episodes now, and I think you guys are doing some uh, some great work with a variety of uh, different opinions and different uh, perspectives, so thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. This is um, such an important topic Uh the Holocaust, we've just recently observed um, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And, you know, it, one of the things, um, before we really dive into our, our list of questions, is it feels to me that the, the word Nazi gets thrown around so easily nowadays that it almost is threatening to cause it to lose the significance and the importance, historically speaking about how a group of people came into power and did such horrible atrocities um, and the lessons that we can learn from it. Because if it just becomes this throwaway phrase, um, you know, some, anybody, anytime you don't like somebody, you can somehow compare them to a Nazi. I feel like it's taking the teeth out of it. What, what would you think about that?
0: Sure. And, you know, and I wouldn't say any one particular group or segment is guilty of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jews themselves, uh, very famous Jews, I would say, have, have played a part in that to an extent of, you know, watering down Nazi to some degree in terms of its, its bite and, and really the seriousness with which it comes from. Uh, specifically thinking of the soup Nazi episode of, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. and uh, you true. Know, the soup Nazi doesn't give me the soup. You know, and, and that's, that goes along with culturally Jewish humor and the sarcasm of, of dealing with, uh, you know, atrocity and with pain in uh, different ways. You know, the, the atrocity in this case of not getting soup that you want. But, uh, but, but, but no question, I think that <clears throat> understanding what Nazi uh, means, uh, which if we take it out, it is an abbreviation after all of uh, the, you know, the German National uh, Socialismus, which means National Socialist. Or national socialism, and understanding what that uh, political system meant, what that economic economic system meant, and uh, fundamentally what it stood for, and what the ramifications are of following similar sorts of systems. Absolutely. But how
2: could you compare that with what's going on with mm-hmm. <clears throat> the United States today? I mean,
1: well, and I laws. think I think what he was saying is that it's so. Um, You know, there's gallows humor involved, and sometimes people, they they just pick a phrase and decide to to throw it at their opponent. But, um, and maybe where you were going was actually our first question is, how do the laws that were in pre-Nazi Germany, how do those relate to the laws that have been implemented over time here in the United States?
0: Sure, so there's, there's a few different examples, perhaps the most egregious example that it always stuns me. That is, not, that, that this particular uh, fact, verified facts, whichever way you go with, with in terms of historians on whichever side you go. And uh, this particular fact is not uh, up for question. What is up for debate is of course uh, what people extrapolate from it and the conclusions that they reach. But it's, you know, documented in history that on July 2nd of 1968, uh, the U.S. Senator from Connecticut named Thomas J. Dodd, a Democrat from Connecticut, asked uh, the librarians that worked with the Library of Congress to translate a copy of the Nazi weapons law of 1938. And what's really interesting about this uh you know one how did he come into possession of this is pretty straightforward he worked as a on the prosecution team with uh the you know at the trials of nuremberg actually prosecuting nazis so uh you know he he had his diplomatic time over in in germany uh right following the war 45 and on to be able to you know presumably procure the uh, a variety of legal documents but once he had this in his possession he wasn't asking for a whole host of other things to be translated he specifically asked for the Nazi weapons law, not Mm. German Weimar Republic act, not, not, uh, you know, the Weimar Republic that was a largely democratic institution in the twenties and before, but the 1938 Nazi weapons act, this democratic Senator asked for a full translation of this. Mm. Again, what's telling here is that this same Senator was the principal author and the principal author and sponsor of the Gun Control Act of 1968, four months after asking for this translation. Hmm. That I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, just you... you know, you know, and what's what, what's just going further from from that piece is that if you take these two pieces of legislation, or if you take the Nazi Weapons Act of 1938, and you take a full tr- translation of this and put it next to, of course, the English. American Gun Control Act of 1968 and put them side by side, you'll find that the similarities, and we can go through a few of these, but the similarities between the two of them is just is just stunning. It's just absolutely, it's clear to anyone looking at these that this senator used this document as a basis for the Gun Control Act of 1968. Jeff, so yeah. uh,
2: uh, why do you think Sorry. he used... Why do you think he used that uh, as a ever a reference? Was it because it was so that it worked for Germany?
0: Hmm. So, I mean, it's 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 hard to say exactly because anything <clears throat> as from a historical angle, uh, we we try not to speculate as to you know why someone may have done something if we don't have actual documents on it. Unfortunately, Tom, uh, it was re- this sort of understanding of he got this translation going through this. Much of this was revealed in the early 90s um, by some of Aaron Zellman's work and others. And, and fundamentally, by this time, Thomas J. Dodd, when, when a lot of this came forward and was published, had it, he had already died. So we were, were not able to ask exactly, you know, what were you trying to do here? Because <laughs> that is a very good question. And, and, and it's hard to say, of course, because taking it further with, with some of the parallels that are so clear, um it, it is unfortunate as to as to how they were used, and, and we can get into that a little bit further too well
1: and you know we've are, we already had the benefit of hindsight right it 's not like oh well we 're not sure what the results of this could end up being, and yet there was this purposefulness of of finding and choosing the exact phraseology and language it 's a little bit chilling and feels like it 's very. Telling And so the the anti, right now, uh, in real time in the United States, the anti-rights, anti-gun crowd.
0: Cheryl, if mm -hmm. if you don't mind, actually, I I could actually go through a couple of the similarities, too, just so listeners are aware of of these, you know, instead of just kind of taking my word for it, right? Mm -hmm. So from the U.S. Gun Control Act of 1968, uh, this is when FFLs or federal firearm licenses first came about. That was a direct uh, take from the Nazi weapons law of 1938. They required sellers and guns uh, and makers and manufacturers of guns, as well as sellers to have a license before conducting business. Um, Furthermore, uh, the Gun Control Act of 1968 uh, granted government the ability to outright say which types of firearms uh, simply can or can't be owned, uh, specifically introducing this new novel piece of, um, of a sporting purposes test that, uh, you know, there's nothing in the second amendment, perhaps speaking on this, on you know, United States terms that refers to, Oh, you know, a well-regulated militia with sporting purposes, you know, shall not be in <laughs> this to this end. So this was a, a novel piece that again was taken in the same way that the Nazi weapons law had p- components about hunting purposes. So, You know, there's some slight language changes, but hunting purposes and, you know, effectively within translation, hunting purposes, sporting purposes, very similar. Um, Furthermore, just as how the document reads, it reads as a treatment of gun ownership being, you know, a privilege and something that is, you know, not a right. This is uh, specifically outlined in the Nazi weapons law of of 38 and then in, in, in implicit in, uh, gun control at GCA of 68. And then also this is really, perhaps I think the most dangerous, uh, two pieces next that, that came from both laws. One is that it required, uh, in the Nazi weapons law, it required all gun sellers record all gun sales mm. and police in the case of Nazi Germany or, you know, Weimar Germany before even were required were permitted rather to, on on, a, on an unannounced basis, uh, perform any sort of audit, any type of inspection, anything they want, which if you talk to FFLs and gun stores today, does not sound all that uh, set separate from the ATF and how the ATF functions. And specifically here, uh, the Form 4473, which was the form drafted, again, off of the exact styling of the Nazi weapons law of 38, that had you know, and again, here's the most dangerous part. It has, you know, age, it has height, weight, all of these other identifying characteristics, but here's the part that to this day, I will never have somebody be able to give me a legitimate reason as to why this is in there. race. When you go buy a gun, it'll ask you your ethnicity Mm -hmm. and your race. Mm -hmm. And if you open up a four, a form four, four, seven, three, and scroll down, it'll say, oh, well, this is Essentially, they're saying this is because we want to have ro- racial profiling um, w- when we may need it, perhaps, in the, you know, the solving of crimes and, and the, for criminal justice purposes. But this is exactly the same justification that the Nazi weapons law of 1938 had. And going back to your piece, yes, the, uh, the outcome was obviously well, when
2: I asked, horrific. When yes. I asked the ATF why, because I've been audited several times, uh, why that's in there. They say it's because they can tell the difference between Dan Todd, the black guy and Dan Todd, the white guy. Mm-hmm. And it's a form of ID. I don't believe, yeah, I, I don't little believe either. explanation.
1: Um, <laughs> and, you know, I have um, actually been shocked that there hasn't been any kind of like a uproar or a pushback about that that racial piece because you know race has been such a huge topic um in the news over the last you know 10 years uh it's been re-heightened i believe um and it, it just seems odd to me that that we all just kind of go oh well okay the government wants to know and surely we can trust the government so yeah that's fine what else do you need to know
0: you know <laughs> so Right, you know, amongst uh, you know pro gun individuals, we we could argue on whether a four four a form four four seven three should even exist at all. But you would think that it, there might be consensus that okay, there is some document. Why not at least pull out race, pull out? You know, I, I could see individuals saying you know sex should be pulled off, male and female, the you know uh, non binaryism, whatever it may be. And and so there's a lot of things on this form that are are requiring self-identification. And the racial one, of course, is is especially problematic.
2: I I couldn't agree more. Um, So you're saying the one in uh, 1938 uh, also had the race uh, check marks on it?
0: Well, it's not that it had it as much as as it was outright saying your identification already included, uh, unfortunately to this date. If you were Jewish, for example, if you were Juden, they would have this on here and it would outright ban people of certain uh, races, such as Jews, uh, gypsies being another, which are now referred to as Roma and Sinti, uh, from being able to buy guns at all. So, you know, it was more, uh, you know, if you're not German, you're not getting it. Um,
2: They might have used that in 68. I mean, we can only assume because he's not here to answer the question, but he can only assume that maybe he didn't want. He wanted to make sure that he knew if a black person was buying a gun
1: or Hispanic or, Hispanic, or an Asian yeah. or a female or, you know, take your, take your pick because whatever the identifier yeah. uh, identifiers are. But yeah, in 68, that definitely would have been, um, maybe a concern because you're talking about like the black Panther right. party right. and
0: sure. cointel pro there's, yeah. there's, no, there's a lot yeah. Of uh, you know racism that existed within the FBI uh, against you know blacks and, and civil rights organizations. Sure. So sure. being able to have that clear list and being able to uh, to uh, so so going to your point, uh, Dan. You know again from a speculative standpoint, I'd have to say, but nevertheless, we could reason that looking at these different racial minorities that were targeted in the U.S., um, even if they weren't targeted. Uh, For annihilation, if they're still targeted for discrimination, that a decent template for, uh, you know, targeting minorities for discrimination with or without the annihilation piece is something that Nazi Germany had a lot of experience with and was something that, uh, you know, uh, Thomas J. Dobb was able to say, hey, we've got a, a good template to work off of here.
2: Wow. Right. So if they said, you know, at the time that the things going on in 68 with the blacks, mm-hmm. they could have said, hey, let's go to all the gun shops, take every forty four, seventy three that had a black person on it and go confiscate those guns. Yeah. Sure so knows. it's it's cruel, it's sure terrible.
1: So the the anti-rights and anti-gun crowd are always fond of using phrases like common sense gun laws. And I think they even say them like that, right? To make them sound all reasonable and warm and fuzzy. Among the types of laws that they want to implement are registration and licensing. So historically speaking, Jeff, Uh, How have these kinds of measures worked out for the citizens who
0: complied? Sure. So first in terms of licensing, uh, licensing was uh, first required for individuals. I mentioned businesses and other pieces uh, in 38, but also for uh, individuals, uh, whether they were Jewish or not, uh, just being in Germany by the uh, weapon, uh, the Weimar Law on Firearms and Ammunition of 1928. So this was passed in a very nervous, um, but you know, democratic functioning, largely uh, Republican government, uh, by you know, run by Heinrich Brüning and you know Hindenburg and others, depending on you know, chancellery, Presidency and so on, that were very nervous of. Um, You know what they saw as communist insurgents. They saw they saw as um, external forces of you know these. This is a foreign threat. It was perceived that you know communist uh, you know Russia is going to fund uh, the KDP, which you know was the Deutsche Communist Party, and they have a different order of their words. But so the KDP and they're going to fund these groups, and these people are going to have a violent coup, and they're going to overthrow our government. So we need to have some kind of law on the books that makes it so that police chiefs um, around Germany can determine selectively who can have a gun um, and who can't. Uh, and this was later extended to include truncheons and clubs and knives and other things. Um, but it started with you know, with firearms. And so they really said, all right, you know, th- th- this is going to make us safer. This is going to allow the police in, in their own areas to effectively what we call um, may issue in the United States where a chief can, if they want, give you a gun. um, But they are certainly not obliged to give you a license to carry a gun rather. And there's both, there was both carry restrictions as well as purchase restrictions, so a license, an acquisition license as it was termed. And there, there are absolute, uh, there's absolute proof that uh, Jews, uh, you know, just again, in the, in the months prior to, uh, you know, Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, uh, which was the first state-sanctioned uh, pogrom uh, of sorts that occurred in uh, November 1938. Um, there, months prior to this, police chiefs were, you know, going around and and using these sorts of laws on the books that had been passed by a democratic, uh, you know, Weimar Republic, but they were still on the books. The Nazis that had then come to power in 33 were able to say, "Okay, great, we have." effectively the same thing as what's called a 4473 in the U.S. We have, you know, your name, your address, um, you know, at this time too, even, you know, race, all these different pieces of of identifying information. We know what you have. Um, I had forgot to mention earlier another requirement that um, was born out of the Nazi weapons law of 38 that was then included in the Gun Control Act of 1968 was the mandated requirement of having serial numbers on every gun uh, manufactured. So, um, with, with one slight exception there, which is if you make it yourself, which is kind of where the 3d printing gun movement comes in, but I digress. And so there was serial numbers and all these guns, uh, you know, brand names on all these and Again, you knew exactly who had them and where. So we, we, we have, we have the history that shows they went house to house and they said you have 24 hours to, uh, you know, nonviolently hand over your your weapons, and we we know you have this, 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 and this. And if you don't, you will be shot. Um, you will be shot if you don't within 24 hours. And um, and people complied. People said, you know, at this time, it, it, the the Holocaust had yet to unfold. Really, this was before Kristallnacht even. This was before Kristallnacht. So so people thought. This is like another program. This is like something, you know, the programs have happened in Russia before in the early 1900s. They've happened to a, to a lesser degree in Germany. Germany was considered one of the safest safest places for Jews in, in many respects. Um, in some ways, even it wasn't, over. wasn't, right? Months. Right. I think it wasn't.
2: So they passed this law in 1928 to protect themselves, not the people. Right. They make it sound like it's to protect the citizens. But in fact, it was to protect the government.
0: It was, I mean, intentions versus outcome, right? You know, the, the intentions, of course, were supposedly for public safety and for the idea that, the, you know, these violent groups, these the, you know, the communist groups, or, you know, even the fascist groups to some extent, although the police oftentimes did favor the fascist groups because the Nazis were, uh, you know, were very smart to curry favor with police groups and say fascism and the rising tide of, uh, you know, of the Nazi party this is, this is the party of law and order. So, you know, if you back us, you arm us, you know, we work together here, we'll get these, you know, leftist communists out of here. And, uh, and so, and we saw how that worked out.
2: Absolutely. So if the, if the U S government told us today, you have 24 hours to turn your guns in or you would be shot. How, I mean, can you even imagine that could happen in the United States, but it's happening, not just in not in Germany, it's happened to other places. It sure has, which is
1: part of Jeff's studies. And, um, you know, when you talk about, well, what's happening right now in the United States over the past few weeks, we have been uh, hearing mayors across the nation, urging their citizens to snitch on one another with the the mayor of Los Angeles going so far as to say snitches get rewards, Uh right? So as soon as I heard that, my mind went to the red flag gun laws that have been pushed for by politicians all over the nation, which can result in anonymous tips, right, snitching, leading to a citizen's door being kicked in and their guns being forcefully confiscated, not due to any crime that person committed, but simply because a snitch doesn't feel comfortable that the other person owns something that they don't like. How does all of that relate to what you've seen, not just even in Nazi Germany, because you've studied genocides all over the, the world, but um, how does that relate to what you've seen in world history, Jeff?
0: Sure. And, and the reason also just uh, beyond, beyond kind of my own personal interests, being Jewish, being interested in these pieces, um, that the Holocaust, I think, is studied so readily and so much more thoroughly than other genocides, like you mentioned there, because um, I do study others, but the emphasis is unquestionably on the holocaust, and that 's thankfully or you know just disgustingly in large part because the Nazis and the Germans are very good with their details and record keeping, and so we have a very clear paper trail on how all of this went down and um when and where and to whom and everything which just that wasn't the case in rwanda right you know with with machetes in the jungle like there's there's plenty of cases at where um or in the armenian genocide which goes back to you know the late 19 teens and you know the world war one era so uh just in terms of that piece uh that that's kind of why that's the case but the question i would ask in kind of response to your question is how, First of all, how is it? And this is genuinely something I, I was curious of before our talk. Was how is it currently verified that you have guns when a red flag order is petitioned for? I mean, I mean, do you, either of you know? Because I'm not sure. I haven't.
1: Well, I'm. I would say that they would go to um, you know, if they know that a person happens to frequent AZ Firearms, they're gonna go knock on our door, right? Or if they happen to know they, they go to Cabela's all the time in, in a certain city, they're, they're going to go probably pay them a visit and want to see some records on uh, from this person's name.
2: Oh, yeah. They can, they can do a uh, – when we do a background check, there's some kind of record kept there that they don't know what he purchased, but they know, they may know he purchased either a handgun or a long gun. Uh, and it's scary because, Jeff, I mean, some of the things the public doesn't know, gun shops. I, mm-hmm. all of our, all of our stuff is electronic. When the ATF come do an inspection, they take their little drive and they put it in your computer. And now what do they have? They have all the records and, you know, 90% of the shops in the country work off electronic because it's too complicated. You can't do it manually. So this form of it, it's still a form of registration. And
1: so if they purchase them through a, a retailer, like we are, Um, then yeah, there is a record, which is why I think we need to very much preserve the, the right that we can transfer property, you know, um, as private citizens without this, uh, the, the government's interference, Mm -hmm. because who needs to know what guns I do or don't own? Nobody, nobody needs to know that.
0: Well, and I think the key there is understanding that. In order to enforce a red flag law you have to have registration it's kind of what I was getting at because if you can't if you can't prove that somebody has a gun or that they have you know th- th- then fundamentally the, the whole order itself is unjustified and there's a host of um, you know the, of things that we could say that they are unjustified to begin with but just from a perspective of people who may think hey Red flag laws, I think that increases public safety in some way. But registration, I'm not for that. The thing is, because registration could lead to confiscation or could lead to other issues, you have to just see that in order to enforce a red flag law, in order to even begin petitioning or looking into that, presumably there has to be that record that you're talking about. Um, and like you said, you know, you know that you, as, as a, an FFL or uh, anyone who, who runs a gun store, you're required to keep that record for 20 years. Right. So, and even if you close, you're required to then uh, hand that over. Both of those pieces, um, the 20 year requirement was was new with the Gun Control Act of 1968, but the requirement of if you close, handing that record over to authorities, in this case the ATF, that that was taken from uh, from the Germans. <laughs> and
2: they process all of that too. They put that all on documents, which is awesome. So it's in you know, you think if you're going to pass a law, it has to be a successful law. And a red flag law is not going to ever be successful because, so you come and take my guns, but you didn't get them all. How do you know you got them all? How do you know, how do you know that? And besides that red flag law, it it needs to be on the person, the the person, not the, if, if, if a person's a threat, it's the person, not the guns.
1: But see, we act in such, um, illogical ways. Like right now we're watching American citizens just give up, just rolling over, just giving up important constitutionally protected freedoms and liberty because we're navigating something that we've never even experienced before this worldwide pandemic.
2: That they're telling us is a worldwide pandemic.
1: Right. Which do we really know exactly? We, we don't really, you know, we, we don't have a way to personally assess it. So We could kind of call it like the psychology of the unknown impacting how compliant or defiant humans are in any given circumstance. So thinking back to the time before the Holocaust, before all of the atrocities, we often want to use our current hindsight to say, well, if the Jewish people had firearms, they would have fought back and prevented all of the atrocities. And I have to believe that at some point, they would have seen what was happening and they they would have uh fought back once the reality set in but what has your research shown you about that kind of assertion
0: jeff yeah so 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 a couple things one is that we know that jews did have guns in weimar republic germany Uh, jews had uh, volunteered and fought in World War I on behalf of their respective mother or father nations, um, valiantly died and were patriotic in their own, uh, own ways. We know that Jews um, also, uh, German Jews were very proud to be German and uh, followed the law dutifully and registered their guns and turned them in without um, really any recorded uh, issues you know, all through the years from, again, the late 20s and through the 30s. We know they did not have guns when uh, it came time to to round up Jews in most of the ghettos. The, the exceptions are what's interesting. Uh, there's a couple, pr- unfortunately, there are few exceptions because most of the time they dutifully did turn them in. Um, and, and I think it's important to note that in hindsight it's easy to it's easy to say well why didn't you hang, hang on to your guns you know you you clearly you know it was leading to this i, I think it's very important to understand that dur- during the time of, of you know everything going down um, it was fairly unprecedented while there was the armenian genocide and other pieces again this had not been publicized or studied in any any sort of way which is part of the reason why it is so important to study the Holocaust and to publicize these things and to remember them, so, so that never again truly does hold uh, hold water and, and mean mean what it says. But um, but again, going back to the exceptions, the two notable ones were the uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, uh, where we we know actually more information has come out fairly recently, specifically saying uh, the exact numbers. It was several hundred handguns. Um, perhaps a few dozen rifles and one machine gun uh, that broke on the first day. Uh, (laughs) This was the armament of the Jews. Now the Warsaw ghetto had up to about half a million uh, Jews at its peak um, before it was systematically emptied over time. And then the final order was issued uh, to, uh, to empty it. And at that time, a few thousand Jews were remaining with, again, the arms that I just mentioned. And they were able to hold the Nazis at bay for depending if you you know really go back to the the last, last, last person, it could have been as, as high as three, four, five, six months, but the bulk of them even were killed after after a couple months. But the point is that that's the entire Nazi German war machine. I mean, Hitler was furious, Himmler was furious, Goring, all of these guys were like, what's going on? There's just a bunch of Jews in this ghetto. How have you not killed all of them? You're using gas, you're using flamethrowers, you're using tanks, artillery, machine guns, and they're lasting months. This is embarrassing to the entire Reich. So people sometimes look at that uh, from a anti-gun perspective and say, look, they died anyways. Mm. But the message that it sent to partisans in Poland, you know, of course Warsaw was in Poland and all around Poland and You know, the greater parts of, you know, what's present in Ukraine and Germany itself, French partisans, the message was getting out to partisans everywhere, that if you fight back, you may die, but you're going to give the Germans hell along the way, Mm -hmm. and you may change the course of the war to some extent. Mm -hmm. The other example, um, before I kind of get off this horse, is just the Bielski partisans, which uh, was famously portrayed um in the movie defiance which was the based off of the book defiance by Nahamatek. and uh that's the story of these Bilski brothers that were in kind of the ukraine area and they survived by having some guns and running around in these you know dense swamply you know swamp forests and just kind of you know evading they were ne- so so one what i always get frustrated by is people say oh well, if they had just had, you know, guns and all these things, of course they couldn't beat the Nazi army. I mean, it took the entire American war machine and the allies and all of these things to ultimately crush Nazi Germany. But who's to say that in a conflict for your survival, mm-hmm. you're going to just, you know, go into an open field and march you know like uh british soldiers t- to go fight the germans i mean th- this is guerrilla warfare you would be mm-hmm. in the swamps. you'd be in the woods you'd be trying to get to what was known as palestine at the time in israel you'd be trying to find you know passageways you'd go to greece and you know which was more friendly to the jews uh the greek christians were you know very uh, you know in favor of hiding jews and protecting them for example archbishop tomaskinos of uh, athens you would find ways to survive but if you don't even have a pistol or something then you can't even keep the person chasing you to back off to Mm -hmm. to try and evade Mm -hmm. they're going to come right for you hunt you down and take you out as they did over and over again except for those two cases
2: well i think that the the hardest battle to fight is a battle within Mm -hmm. and so the people that were within the country could have done a lot more damage but they do it like they put, I guess, like a frog in a in a pot of water. Mm. You turn it on, you boil it and it gradually. So they take a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of your freedoms away until pretty soon you have no freedom at all and you can't fight now. I think that that's kind of what they did with that. So uh, it's terrible, but uh, it would have been interesting to see a fight within, you know, in the country, how it would have turned out. For sure. That's an
0: important an analogy and I'll just make one short point on that, which is this, you know, essentially if you look at those Weimar republic laws that were passed in that democratic era in that was you know starting to turn that the water up starting to turn the heat up right it, it it wasn't until almost you know what if we're looking at 10 years later that you actually started to see now you know the the violence unfold mm-hmm. but yet so so at first you see oh you know we're just having to register we're just having to get licenses you know, this isn't too big of a deal right now. Mm-hmm. And then later it turns into, all right, well, we don't want to get shot. So we're going to turn in what we just had to register mm-hmm. and then so on and so forth. So, so very much, um, you know, it was a long process. It took over a decade. And so you have to have the long view when looking at this for sure.
2: So let's look at the long view of the United States, 1968 to now. Look at how many things we've given up. Yeah. How many things that we have. And if we wouldn't fight, for that right. And with the constitution, then we would have lost a lot more than what we already have lost.
1: That is the truth. And here's one thing that, you know, going through this, you know, historical remembrance right now in this conversation, historically speaking, it seems that Jewish Americans tend to be against gun ownership and it feels so counterintuitive Considering the number of times all through history, I mean, way back before the United States, way back before Germany, way back all the way to biblical times, that the Jews have been persecuted time and time again, it seems like uh, Jewish people would be, you know, very much on the forefront of. A self-defense movement or, you know, definitely trying to hold on to every syllable of, of a constitutional right. What, what can you tell us about that feels like a dichotomy to me?
0: Sure. So, you know, it's funny, I've, I've Googled this question at great length too, just be, you know, be, to try and understand, you know, what, what the internet thinks about this, you know, cause you're going to get the trolls, you're going to get the, uh, the bigots, the, big the racists, and all kinds of things in between. And what's interesting is I started finding all kinds of pro gun Jews that were, that are, you know, or, run a little, uh, you know, st- store called Masada Tactical that was in Maryland. I saw that, you know, was based off of the name of Masada, which was the famous, uh, uh, you know, last stand of the Jews on top of a uh, plateau in Israel against the Romans in ancient times. And all of these different, uh, you know examples of pro gun Jews that ha, that that are, are in America today not to mention Israel which um they've got their own concerns with how they actually have their laws but you know i don't think anyone would question that they're fighters so you know again one one opinion that i thought was interesting said that there's a, an ex, there's this thing called a shtetl mentality now a shtetl is the little village like fiddler on the roof that we all, you know, know and love that from kind of, you know, uh, late 1800s, Russia and the, and the preceding centuries where everyone knew each other and it was very traditional and, and everyone, uh, you know, <clears throat> kind of went about their business. And this, this, uh, you know, this writer advocated that a, a shtetl mentality developed where in order to survive uh, in the shtetl, since you were not allowed to legally have um, weapons of a variety of different forms, Um, or and even if you were able to have one illegally somehow, you know the, the Cossacks, the local Russians would come in, the local uh, you know uh, majority population, whatever it may be, and they would come and rape one person, kill one person, break a few things, and that was the the gist of a pogrom. You know, it wasn't mass murder. It was essentially what you know the blacks of uh, you know in America have lived through. Um, to, th- throughout a, a large part of history, including up to today in, in some regards. So so s- having this shtetl mentality of, all right, in order to survive, though, we, what happens if we we went to a Cossack village and started killing a few of them? They way outnumber us. They'll come and they'll massacre our whole village. So we we survive by, a, you know, horrifically, allowing for the singular rape or murder of someone once in a great while and and we we persevere Mm -hmm. um that's that was the opinion of this individual and i'm not saying i necessarily subscribe to it or not um of american jews uh, to today and was and this this was clearly trying to differentiate between israelis um who of course are jewish as well today um i don't know how much truth there is to it all together though i'd say some of that is some of it is a stereotype based on the fact that, for better or worse, some of the most prominent voices in the anti-gun movement that are Jewish are really prominent. We got Diane Feinstein, Mike Bloomberg, Chuck Schumer, no question. But I would just you know say that hey, you know that the, I'm sure there's super anti-gun uh, Catholics and uh, Protestants and whatever of all kinds of different things. Just like Alan Gottlieb on the on the program side of, of Second Amendment Foundation, Alan Gura the off the lead lawyer uh behind heller is israeli is jewish you know out of la and you know uh, they're the founder of the jews for the preservation of firearms ownership jpfo aaron zellman he died in 2010 but you know he was clearly jewish Uh, richard feldman was an ex uh, nra uh, lobbyist for a period of time, jewish uh, Mm -hmm. myself jewish so i think that you know um just as a perspective we tend to be tainted by these very loud voices that have prominent positions within government, but those aren't the only voices. And over a period of time, I think that could, uh, you know, if you had just one, let's say who was equally loud on another, on another side that might outweigh that one day.
2: Well, like Feinstein, she's a leader, so she doesn't really have to, cause she's under control. She's in control, but it would, to me, it, I would be afraid of that because it happened before it could happen again. And, by me being down with it, not worrying about guns and stuff, not worrying how to protect myself, depending on the government to take care of me could destroy me that quick.
1: So clarify what you said about Feinstein. She's under control. No,
2: she, she is control. She controls people. Oh, she
1: controls. She everybody. controls. She she's part of the others. control.
2: So she, she kind of has a say what goes on. Mm-hmm. So she's not worried. Why would she be worried? Well,
1: she probably has. Security detail, all that kind of good stuff. So she's a little removed from, from that. Um, So uh, we are running a little long on time. So I'm going to try to maybe wrap these next two questions into each other. Um, So you, through this master's thesis work that you've been doing, um, I'm wondering if you've been able to discover sort of an overarching message about whether or not if like if our as a nation if we decided that we really want to end up being sovereign individuals who are citizens of a sovereign nation if that was what we really want do guns matter does individual gun ownership matter and then the other piece of that is i 'm um, part of this group the the d c project we're a, a women 's group pro rights pro guns uh, group and we 've started spreading the message of you know let 's lean into education over legislation let 's teach kids gun safety let 's teach our our neighbors uh, a better way of, of viewing us and understanding why we value firearms ownership rather than trying to you know stir people up to say well let 's go control." Them over there, and then that ends up actually controlling all of us. Um, so do guns matter if you want to be a sovereign individual in a sovereign nation? And do you think that education or legislation might take us closer to that goal?
0: Yeah, so, so I'd say, first of all, you know, sure, guns matter, uh, but I'd also say, you know, so do. Knives and you know, maybe even grenades or other weapons. I think the lesson from the Holocaust um, And even from just so many other genocides is that You know, there's this term that I think I may have coined I'm not sure but I I just kind of been using it more recently is the greater the armament asymmetry So the greater that the, the arms are asymmetrical the imbalance between uh, you know a government or some sort of central authority and the masses at large, uh, the greater the risk there is to being some sort of mass atrocity perpetrated against an unarmed or lethal, um, an, an unarmed group. And, you know, that with all, the other great lesson or takeaway I'd say is that, anytime, um, is that weapons really represent lethal force, power, and of course with that comes responsibility, but understanding the the, the freedom that comes with that. now. I think that again, one final overarching piece is that you really can't because um, so so oftentimes I'll have these conversations with with groups, with student student colloquiums and other pieces, and people will say, Yeah, but that was the Holocaust, that was that was these genocides, that like what I care about is the mass shootings. I care about like the, the, the students, I care about the pulse nightclub, I care about these other things. And I think it is. I think it's important for for gun rights groups to understand that a a little bit of gun rights is actually quite dangerous. I actually would say that if you have a, a country with full gun control, I would see the point that I think you actually would get rid of a lot of mass shootings. Hmm. But at the very high cost mm-hmm. of the potential for these mass atrocities in the long run, yeah. That could absolutely overwhelm those those much smaller events that you've you saved for. Mm-hmm. Now so that's where I've gotten to this point where I'm saying you can't have a little bit of gun rights. You've mm-hmm. got to, you can't have the licensing and the registration and some of these pieces and think well I have to go through those but I get I get a gun I'm a, I'm able to shoot on on the weekends I'm enjoying it like isn't that the Second Amendment? No. No, if you have a little bit of it, that is, I think, what enables some people to be armed and others not. If you're going to have an armed society, it has to be collective and it has to be that one in three people may be carrying it at any given moment. That you know, One in five, whatever it is, it's got to be high enough that at any given moment from a, from a public safety perspective, you have that always there to be able to deal with the fact that now lethal force is in the hands of the people. Mm-hmm. that's one side of it. But in doing that, you're also now making the, the people free and the people safer from their own government versus what mass atrocities could occur in the long run. That is the far greater uh, danger.
2: Hmm. So Jeff, I have one question. And this is just a question that, you know, I, I know you can't answer, but do you believe that it could happen again? the The Holocaust or something like that?
0: Um, not only do I believe it can happen again but it has happened again genocide watch which is a respected group um, not leftist rightist anything of this effect Um, you know in fact there's there's very few uh, Holocaust specific uh, academics that um, you know that look at what we're looking at with this level of nuance but genocide Watch, which just looks at genocides from a numerical level that have occurred has documented something in the range of 70, seven zero genocides that have occurred since the formation of the UN. So since World War II even, since, yeah. you know, so, so FDR, you know, and putting in place the, the UN and all these things, we have continuously to see dozens of genocides. Um, and, and we only hear about some of the biggest ones, Rwanda, Cambodia, Uh, and and on and on, both of those of which that were, you know, in the 90s and then in the late 70s, respectively. So um, when we say never again, some people have cynically looked at that. Uh, When when academics and, you know, people in the space say never again, it's been looked at cynically to think that does that only refer to never again for Jews in Europe, Mm. or does that mean never again that on this earth – a group will be selectively targeted, that is unarmed and murdered, um, just because of who they are, and and that we have yet to get to the point where never again is is truly realized.
2: Then one more question for you, and thank you for that answer. But do you think, since the UN started, has there any has there been any genocide in any country where people were allowed to carry
0: arms? I'm looking for it. Nope. Um, I, I mean, the, the only thing I would say to that is just how you phrase that question. Cause you said where people are allowed to carry arms and I'm reading you into saying that, that the masses are allowed to have arms right. in a fairly unregulated because yes. people could be the military and people could be the police. The, and if you. Citizens,
2: believe, I say the citizens.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, the no. people who are being
2: <laughs> genocide. Okay. The people who are being killed. If they had, has there been any that they were armed and could defend themselves, that that happened to them.
0: Right. No. And and the the piece there that, again, I'll qualify as well, is that um, sometimes we need more, you know, more or better words than we have today. I mean, genocide was only coined by this, uh, you know, scholar named Raphael Lemkin in the, the 1940s and 50s who felt that there needed to be a word for that. I mean prior to that it was referred to, you know, whatever the leader of the you know Churchill said that the holocaust which didn't have a name at the time was just, you know, a crime without name. Hmm. Okay. But what does that really, you know, mean? So so Raphael Lemkin said we need a word and he lobbied very effectively and very hard with the UN to have a definition of genocide that included the, you know, specific targeting Of of a variety of groups now I say a variety because it it is not all-inclusive because who is in the UN Russia's in the UN China I mean powerful figures within the UN so at the time when Stalin and others were looking at this it was determined um, that hey we don't want political groups to be considered uh, part of a genocide so the genocides uh, that I might term genocide of all of, uh, you know, within Maoist China, of, of their own people, rather, it's not being targeted because of racism. It's not being targeted via anything except, you know, we need to ship our rice off to Russia so we can get more arms. So you got, you know, 10 million of you are going to have to starve. you cool with that? And fundamentally, that's not legally genocide by the UN convention. So that's where uh, scholars such as RJ Rummel in the 1990s said, let's come up with this term called democide, which refers to any group of persons um, killed by their government um, or killed not by their necessarily, because it could be a foreign government, but killed by government. Um, because one thing we have seen is that every genocide has been perpetrated uh, by you know a central force of government, whether it's a foreign government or a local government. It's not just, um, you know, local parties or groups. Um, for the for, for the most part, it's it's, it's almost always um, government actors, including the Rwandan genocide. That people might say, "Oh no, what about that one?" Uh, you know, that was people with machetes running all over the place. That was largely started by Hutu uh, Hutu leaders in the government. So, absolutely, a- long awesome.
1: <laughs> uh, no, awesome information. Uh, it's like we could have had you for three full shows, I think, um, to get to all the stuff we really want to, um, do need to start wrapping up. But, um, what, what would you say about that, that piece of, you know, education versus, you know, rules, which, which thing do you think takes us closer to, to freedom and to being a uh, sovereign?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and I'm sorry for not touching on it explicitly, but I think the, the idea is that very much I think what you guys are doing with the, the DC project is sound and is important in the sense that uh, with, you know, any legislation, uh, you know, that, that fundamentally you have to have all the facts on the ground. You, and, and even before you legislate, it's, there's a lot of nuance to the, to, the, to the discussions that we've been having just now. Mm-hmm. um there's you know there's a lot of nuance that gets missed in the, kind of the public you know layperson's conversation and that's where rightfully so you know the education uh, comes in you know how many people know that the again and this is not disputed how many people know that the us gun control act of 1968 has direct uh, was based on the nazi weapons law of 1938 not um, enough people. Probably, <laughs> yeah, a chunk of people within maybe the pro-gun community. I would say venture to say not even all of those. I'd say mm-hmm. a lot of them. So, so yes, education uh, before legislation uh, so that even if you do have to get to legislation, hopefully you're doing it in a, a somewhat better way.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we have kept you so much longer than I had planned to, but I, I thank you so much. Jeff Kelman, how do people... Like learn more about the work that you're doing and, and your studies, your master's thesis, like what do you plan to end up doing with all this head full of knowledge you've got? And how do we, how do we continue to follow that?
0: Uh, sure. So, I mean, I, in the early stages, but at some point I'd like to have uh, you know, a, a book outlining, uh, you know, a lot of these different pieces here so that people can uh, for, for themselves understand exa- a lot of this and be able to digest it more easily. Um, don't have something at the moment there. The easiest way to just follow or reach out to me is with Twitter. I, I, I love the fact that you can set, you know, direct message me, anyone on Twitter. Um, so I do, and I use that for, you know, my communications with. Professors all over the world and students all over the world and just, you know, like-minded or not like-minded individuals. I think we have to engage across the aisle on all, on all spectrums in order to have an intelligent and uh, productive conversation here. But my Twitter handle is just at Jeff, J-E-F-F underscore Kelman. That's K-E-L-M-A-N. Uh, message me or, or find me on Twitter.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And that I know you will continue to do these um, these events, these ideas, they are too important to be lost to the dusty shelves of uh, bookshelves of history.
2: Sure. Jeff, thank you very much for, for coming on today. I learned a lot.
1: All right. We Cheryl. will definitely have nice. you, you back on again. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye now.
0: I'll be back. Have a good day.
2: Love you me. too. Well, wow, I, I just can't believe it. I mean, the United States, the people of America need to open up. And realize that it can happen again. It may not happen in the same degree. It may even be worse. Yeah. But it can happen again.
1: That may have been the the most important question that was asked and answered um, here today. Can it happen again? Oh, yeah. Not only can it, but it, I mean, it has and it will. It's um, an arm,
2: unarmed citizens.
1: Mm-hmm. And unarmed in their knowledge. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And unarmed in right. their access to um the tools. But we have to run. We have to get out of here. So thank you so much to our amazing listeners. We value you more than words can say. Thank you so much to our incredible guest. Yeah. I have to have Jeff Kelman back on again. Such good information and so fair and so balanced. We in need how to have he, him for
2: dinner. just to,
1: Heck yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. Um, and so until next time, pray for our nation, pray for our leaders,
2: all of them, all of them, Dan,
1: even the ones you don't like,
2: would we have prayed for Hitler?
1: Yeah. For him to stop being all,
2: see, I keep getting messed up with that. Like we can pray to get him fixed. Right. Yes,
1: exactly. Not like pray that he's successful, but pray that he will become more, you know, the way that God had had created his creation.
2: I guess there's still room for more miracles out there, right? So I guess I will pray for everyone. I'll pray for all our leaders. There's miracles available.
1: That's true. All right. Be good to each other. Have a great week and God bless.